0: standing amongst friends and relatives in the local synagogue, and you are waiting for an elderly couple to come in. You've known this elderly couple for some time. As far as you know, they're a godly couple. I mean, there's always things that may happen behind closed doors that you never really know about, but They always presented themselves as godly, and yet for whatever reason, God has never given them a child. And in your culture, you understand it that to be childless is to be cursed by God. So here is this elderly woman who has prayed for decades to have a child, and yet she has never been able to have one. And yet then the news came out that she actually was pregnant with their first son, And that son has been born, and now you're waiting in your synagogue because she's going to come, this elderly couple with her priestly elderly husband, who for we don't even know what happened, but has not been able to speak or hear for the last nine months, and they both come in, and you can just imagine the excitement on everyone's face that God has has given this miraculous blessing to this old couple grandfather, typically you would name a child after grandfather, but grandfather's probably long gone by now. And so they, everybody just assumes that the child is going to take the dad's name. And so everybody is just walking around calling him by the name Zachariah, the baby Zachariah, the baby Zachariah. And the mother keeps going, no, 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 no. His name is John. And so they finally say we're going to settle this once and for all and they grab a little clay tablet and they write on and show it to the dad because he can't hear, he can't speak for the last 9 months and so they write it on a little tablet and says, "Hey, settle this for us once and for all. What is his name?" And the man says, "His name is John." And then all of a sudden he's able to hear. He's able to speak. And the first thing he does, according to verse, wherever it is, (laughs) he blesses the Lord. You can imagine now what's going through your mind. I mean, maybe maybe you're thinking about the stories of Abraham and Sarah, how they were blessed with with a with a child in their uh incredibly advanced ages and now here is kind of the same scenario happening once again. And not only that, but by this act of faith, by Zechariah saying his name is John, all of a sudden his hearing has returned, his speech has returned, and he is blessing God. I imagine you can maybe understand a little bit of what we read in Luke 1:65. that fear came upon all their neighbors, and it was talked about around all the hill country of Judea. And all who heard them laid up in their hearts saying, what then will this child be? You can imagine some of the wonder that maybe surrounded this. And that's what we're gonna talk about this morning is the wonder of this season and and the significance of what it means. Look in your scriptures to the book of Luke chapter one. If you wanna use the Bible in the pulpit in front of you, you'll find that on page 1018 Luke chapter one, we're looking at verses uh, 68 through 80, and we're primarily gonna be looking at verses 68 through 75 this morning, and so that's what we're going to, we're gonna go ahead and read the entire Benedictus, but uh, we're going to uh, be looking at verses 68 through 75, and then next week we'll cover the rest of it. But here's what it says. It says, blessed be the Lord God of Israel, for he has visited and redeemed his people and has raised up a horn of salvation for us in the house of his servant David as he spoke by the mouth of his holy prophets and from old that we should be saved from our enemies, from the hand of all who hate us, to show us the mercy promised to our fathers and to remember his holy covenant, the oath that he swore to our father Abraham to grant us that we, being delivered from the hand of our enemies, might serve him without fear in holiness and righteousness before him all of our days. And you, child, shall be called a prophet of the Most High, for you will go before the Lord to prepare his ways, to give knowledge of salvation to his people and the forgiveness of their sins, because of the tender mercy of our God, whereby the sunrise shall visit us from on high to give light to those who sit in darkness and in the shadow of death and to guide our feet into the way of peace. This is the word of the Lord this morning. May he bless the reading of it. As you are looking through the chapter of Luke chapter 1 and you see all of these occurrences happening one after another after another uh, I think that as you get kind of to this point where the people are asking what then will this child be of course we're talking about the birth of John John the Baptist in in this case and in this text but i think as people are looking around and they're seeing all of these events happening they're beginning to wonder, they're beginning to to say, what are the meaning of these things? Keep in mind, there has not been a prophet in Israel for about 400 years. They have not heard from God in 400 years. And now these events that are, that are very similar to the events of what was happening in the days of his calling out Israel and calling out Abraham and, and all of the patriarchs and the founding of the nation. And maybe if, you're, if you notice, there's a lot of, of Exodus imagery in that prayer that we just read. And you're, and you're seeing all of this and, and you're wondering what is the significance of these things. And I think there's a lot of people today who understand that there is something significant about the Christmas season, but they don't really understand the significance of what it is. See, the people here understood, yes, God is doing something, but they didn't quite know what it was. And for a lot of people, even those who claim the name of Christ, they know That there is something that's supposed to be significant about the season, and maybe they even know the Christmas story, but they don't understand the significance of it. They don't understand the depth of it. They don't understand the reality of it. They see it as a time of nostalgia, a time of tradition and carols. A time of family and food. Maybe some of you, like I did, you even time kind of significant events of your life around the Christmas season because it is so significant. I asked Roxanne to marry me at Christmas time, and and I'm sure you, some of you probably did the same thing. But when Luke records this question, what shall this child be? Of course, they're talking about John the Baptist, but I think that what Luke is doing here is he's including this to invite the readers and ultimately to invite the church to consider and wonder about what is the significance of this time? What does it really mean? He's inviting us to ask, what are the meaning of these events? And just as Zechariah acts out in faithful obedience to God, filled with the Spirit, he cries out and blessing to the Lord. God is inviting us to do the same. He's inviting us to call out in Spirit-filled, faithful obedience to consider these things and wonder at them and then let them drive us to worship and testimony of God and of his goodness for us. And that's what he says at the beginning of this, of this prayer, this prophecy, this song. By the way, those of us who love Christmas carols, you're on solid ground. This chapter is full of Christmas songs. Now, Mar- Mariah Carey, not so much, but, the, uh, but, but and maybe not in October, but the, uh, this, this chapter is full of music, full of incarnation songs. And so you're on solid ground here. And the very beginning of this song, the second song that is sung, second only because Zechariah didn't have the voice to sing it. But 2nd Psalm begins with this Blessed be the name of the Lord God of Israel. Blessed be his name. This morning we're going to look at the first part, verses 69 through 75. Next week we're going to look at the second part, but I'm going to ask you this morning to just consider these events, consider. Zechariah is helping us, giving us some of the significance of this and what's going on. And you'll notice that Zechariah, he is a proud daddy, yes, but you'll notice that of this entire song, there's only like two verses that speaks of his son. And then the rest of it is speaking about what God is doing during this time. And so as we look at this, we're gonna see that he is blessing and he is worshiping and testifying to God's provision And to God's purposes. And so let's look at that this morning. We worship and we testify this season, first of all, about God's provision about God's provision in verse 69 and 71, going back. He says, blessed be the Lord God of Israel, for he has visited and redeemed and has raised up a horn of salvation. This is very vivid language, three times in three different ways. He he kind of gives these descriptions of what God is doing. He has visited us. He has he has redeemed us and he has raised up a horn of salvation for us. Now that word visited, it, it might be easy to overlook. In fact, I think some of your translations may miss some of the significance of it. It says he has come or he has looked after us or, or something of that nature. But visited, it's actually a rich theological term that goes all the way back through the Old Testament. And it's always talking about this time when Israel was waiting for God's visitation. He was waiting for, they were waiting for uh, God to come down and visit them from on high. In fact, it goes all the way back to Genesis 21.1 whenever Sarah had been waiting for so many years and finally God visited her and blessed her womb to conceive Isaac. And so it always has this significance of God coming and carrying out his purposes in the lives of people. Now, sometimes it is for blessing, but sometimes it is for judgment. And so both of those things take place. But it would be so easy to overlook. The most significant, though, is in Exodus chapter four, verse 31. Because here it is speaking of the Exodus, and the people believed. And when they had heard that Yahweh had visited the people of Israel and that he had seen their affliction, they bowed their heads and they worshiped. It's a significant where God is coming to deliver them from their slavery, to deliver them from their cruel oppression and deliver them from all of the hardship and the abuse that they are facing and everything in which they are suffering. God is coming to deliver them from it all. The Lord had visited the people. And that language is used throughout the Old Testament and it's not just a military deliverance it's it's very personal it's like in the movies where you know, back in the old action days, you just had some muscle-bound hero that would go out and fight a war because that's just what he did, you know, and thousands of people were shooting at him and they never hit him, you know, of course, and, and all that. He's like invincible, apparently. Nowadays, they make it more personal. Now, the, now he's not so muscle-bound and, he, and he, goes to, he goes to fight not because he wants to, but because someone he loves has been hurt or something like that, right? And so it's very personal to him, Uh, I'm thinking of, uh, what movie am I thinking of? Uh, What's that? I'm not thinking of that one. Uh, (laughs) So, uh, (laughs) you know what I'm talking about. And so, and uh, I just lost my train of thought. But, you know, it's, it's, it's very personal. And beloved, that's what's happening here, that God is not just going to war because he's a God of war and that's what he does but he's going to war to rescue the people he loves. He's going to war to rescue Israel. Say, where do you get that? From Psalm chapter eight, verse four, where he says that when I consider the stars, when I consider all the things your hand has made, look at this, what is man that you are mindful of him and the son of man that you, same word, care for him. That's the same word that we find here, this word of visitation, that you love him and you rescue him. He rescues us out of our slavery. They they go from being part of Pharaoh's kingdom to being part of God's kingdom. And that really comes to the second part. He has redeemed his people. That is a That is a a term of, of buying back. He has delivered them. He's walked into the slave market and he has chosen a people for himself and he has paid the price. He has delivered them out of their slavery and there is a transfer of ownership to where before they were part of Pharaoh's kingdom, they were slaves of Pharaoh's kingdom. Now they are children of God. And they belong to the family of God. He rescues them. And how has he done all this? He has provided salvation, but he has done this by providing a savior, by sending a savior. In verse 69, it says, he raised up a horn of salvation for us. Now, it might be tempting to think of a trumpet here. Uh, or a shofar is what they would have had. It's a big, long, twisty little thing that you blow in. There might have been, it might be tempting to think about that, but actually, no, what we're talking about here is the actual horn, like the horn protruding from an animal. And this is the only time in the New Testament that it shows up in any other book other than the book of Revelation for obvious reasons. And so it seems kind of weird to us, but, but it's a symbol of, of power. It's a symbol of strength. It's a symbol of majesty that, that, the, that the horn of the animal is, is used as that symbol of absolute power. Now, this sounds a little odd to us, but we have a young man who has given us a wonderful illustration of this last couple of weeks. I got permission from his mother to share it. He killed his first deer. And I think we have a picture out there. Yeah, we do. <laughs> and, uh, and look at the horn on that guy, man. He's, uh, look at the antlers, right? So listen, we, we think that this sounds a little weird, but the truth of the matter is is that think of this in terms of deer. Whenever you kill a deer, what's, what's the first thing your friends ask you? How many points is on it, right? I can tell you, I killed an 84 point one time. I counted them. The branches on that tree had 84 points on them. <laughs> the deer standing beside it got away, but, uh, <laughs> but, uh, but the tree had 84 points, and that sucker was dead after I was done with it. <laughs> but think about this in a deer. Why do we do this? Because even in a deer, the symbol of that animal's majesty And power and strength is centered in its horns, right? And beloved, in the same way, the power and the majesty and the strength of God's redemptive plan is centered in one man who came to earth for us, Jesus Christ our Lord, And all of his redemptive plan, all of his power for our salvation, all of his majesty in redeeming us, all of his his incredible worth is all centered in the horn of salvation he has raised, who the Bible goes on, Zechariah goes on to say, who is raised up from the house of his servant David, spoken by the mouth of his holy prophets from of old. In other words, the entire work of salvation salvation from Genesis to Revelation to now to the end of the age from beginning to end from alpha omega from eternity past to eternity future it is all centered around the glory and the honor and the praise of Jesus Christ our lord he is the horn of our salvation he is the strength of our salvation he is the majesty of our salvation so he's not here today, but please thank Breyer for giving us such a great sermon illustration. And so all of this is centered on him. You see, God has raised a horn of salvation and all of it is summarized in that he is the son of David and he is the object of the prophets. He's the center of it all know, our our culture today has pretty much taken over Christmas. It's become very commercialized. It's, and I mean, that's okay. I I mean, there's no use in fighting it because on at least this side of heaven, that's going to be kind of a losing battle. But even as much of that as they have done it is still a time that our culture is willing to listen to the story of Christ. This is a time unlike any other that they sing, they, they hear songs on the radio by their favorite artist no, nonetheless. Sing all these wonderful carols of the past. And some of them, they'll sing songs. They don't even know what they're singing, but they'll sing songs that have great theology in them. And it's a wonderful time when you're sitting around with your coworkers and you hear them humming one of these songs. And, you know, have you ever really thought about what that song's talking about? Have you ever really thought about what that song means? It's a great time to have conversations, to to direct Secular people who have no idea what the real significance of Christmas is, except that they know that it is significant, and so they're willing to listen a little more than usual. And it's a wonderful time to testify to the provision of salvation that our God has given, to the glory. This is a worldwide celebration. I mean, people in just about every country—not all of them—but just about every country celebrates this time. If they don't do it on the 25th, they do it on the 6th, or they do it in October. But, but the but the idea is the same. They know that this is something big, and so these things can be used to strike up conversations and testify to the fact that God has provided. He has provided salvation and he's done so by sending a savior. We use this time to worship and testify to that and we also use this time to testify and wonder to God's purposes in that. This this is a song. This is a poem. And so you're gonna see kind of some symmetry. You're gonna see some some, uh, parallelism. And just as Zechariah describe that provision in three different ways. He's now going to give us three different purposes that are parallel with what we just said, that he is to show the mercy promised to our fathers to remember his holy covenant and to grant us that we might serve him without fear and holiness and righteousness. So these three purposes, let's look at them. Number one, he did this to show us mercy. He did this to show us mercy. He says, to the mercy promised to our fathers. Zechariah is connecting Jesus's birth to all the promises that were given to the fathers throughout the ages. Beloved, Jesus's birth did not start a new religion. It did not begin a new phase, or maybe that's not right, but it did not begin a totally new plan. There's not two people of God that God had to give up on one to make another. That's, that's not what's happening. This plan has been in the works since the, the foundations of the world. This plan has been in, has been in the works. The, the Bible says that Christ was slain from the foundation of the earth. And this is not a plan B. Beloved, listen, you are not plan B. You are not second best. You're not the ones that God went after because his first choice rejected him. When Jesus was on the cross, he took names with him and your name was among them. I love that old song. I can't remember who sang it. It wasn't a congregational, but I would hear it for specials a lot. It was When, uh, how'd it go? When he was on the cross, I was on his mind. There's a lot of great truth in that song. A lot of great truth. There's another one that uh, my sister used to sing a lot in church. It was, uh, um, he grew the tree that he knew would be used to make the, uh, the old rugged cross. You know, what, what's so, so great about these ideas and their wonderful wonderfully poetic ideas, but there's so much truth in them and it's showing this, that God had this in mind from the very beginning, that his purposes have been sound and they have been planned out from eternity past and carrying out through history into eternity future. And so to show the mercy promised to the father, Zechariah, is connecting these events to salvation history. He's connecting these events to all of the things that have happened in the past. Several times in the Old Testament, when Israel was was so wicked and so sinning and so had left God and had gone after idols and that were really nothing more than just pagans carrying the name of Yahweh, the prophets and the and all of those would often promise that in spite of all of their backsliding in spite of all of their going back to idols, God always promised that I am going to show you mercy. I am going to show you mercy. And now it's a surprising testament to his love and faithfulness that the ultimate mercy that God has always planned to show his people is now coming to fruition And that first, the king maker is born. And then, the one who will be king will be born. I was talking to a a fellow pastor one time. He's part of a denomination that uh, is one of these that believes that salvation is not secure. You have to keep it on your own. Uh, In fact, this particular denomination, I've heard people say things like... uh, uh, that they've asked for salvation every day, every morning when they wake up for 25 years, and and all this kind of stuff, just no security whatsoever. Um, and um, you know, we were talking about this idea of eternal security, perseverance of the saints—I prefer, uh, but whatever you want to call it—we're talking about the same doctrine. And um, and he was—he had been reading through the Book of Kings and through Judges and and through all the history of Israel, and he said, you know. Uh, you know, I got to hand it to you, Baptist, and one thing that if anybody should have fallen from salvation and should have been rejected by God, it should have been Israel. And I said, I said, well, I agree with you for one thing that's not just Israel if anyone should have been rejected if anyone should have been turned away if anyone if god would have looked at anybody and said oh i've made a mistake on this one i got to let him loose it should have been me and yet it is an amazing testament to god's faithfulness to his mercy that time and time and time again he forgives us and he and he brings us back to himself. He chastens us as a father chastens his son. It's an incredible testimony of his ongoing love for us in spite of us. Some people say that God's love is unconditional. I don't don't actually agree with that. It's not unconditional. It's contra-conditional. God has every condition not to love us, He has every reason to reject us. He has every reason to let go of us, but he never does. And just as sure as Advent season comes around again and again and again, so you also know that the mercies of God are new every morning and that they are new every single day. So to show mercy, but also to keep his promise. Look, again, this time, we're not just going back to the prophets or David. Look what he says. To remember (coughs) his holy covenant, the oath that he swore to our father Abraham. And so the very work of redemption, God, in the first 11 chapters of Genesis, he's employing the shotgun and and he's talking about the whole world and he's talking about this people group and that people group and the table of nations and and all of this stuff. But then in Genesis 12, uh, verse one, he zeroes in on one pagan that is from the land of Ur of the Chaldeans and he says, on you, I'm gonna make a covenant with you that I will make your name great and I will make you a father of many nations and everyone who curses you, I will curse. Everyone who blesses you, I will bless. And the entire world will be blessed by you. And beloved, when, when these events are set in motion, when Christ is born, God is keeping that promise. Because all who curse Christ will be cursed and all who bless Christ will be blessed. And by the name of the offspring of Abraham, by the name of Jesus Christ, the whole earth is blessed because of what he has provided for us. So he's kept his promise. Jesus' coming is not an accident of history. It is the kept promise of our father, It shows once and for all that God does keep his word and that all of the anticipation with which we wait for his promises, they will come to pass. And every year around this time, as Advent comes around and we wait in eager anticipation for Christmas Day, we focus on this entire month. Why? Because it, it, it represents the anticipation of our coming Lord. Both what was felt in the lives of the Jews and what is now felt in the lives of his people waiting for him to come again because he has promised us that he will do so. And so to keep his promise and then finally, to make us holy. To make us holy. In verse uh, Beginning in verse 73, it says at the very end there, to grant us that we being delivered from the hands of our enemy might serve him without fear in holiness and righteousness before him all of our days. To grant us that we might serve him. By the way, that word serve you might think of it more as worship. It's, it's, the, it's the term that we get liturgy from. I know Baptists we're not very fond of the word liturgy, but it is the word that we get liturgy from, and it simply means worship. That's all it means. And then that we might worship him, that we might serve him, and it means that we worship him, number one, without fear. I was talking about my friend from that other denomination and I've, I've met other people. I mentioned this, that they've waken up every morning for the last 25 years asking God to save them again just in case. Can you imagine living under that kind of fear for 25 years? That's terrible. Why would you wanna live under that? Why, why would you wanna live under that kind of, Of darkness and not have light. Apparently, this side of the room understands it. (laughs) Let there be light. There we go. Thank you. (laughs) The light just came back on. (laughs) See what I mean? How how scary was that, right? (laughs) It means that we might worship Him without fear. Beloved, you don't have to fear to serve God. Some people say, I've heard this before, that, you know, I, I wanna do more, but I'm just afraid that I might do it wrong. You don't have to be afraid of that. You do not have to be afraid of doing it wrong, beloved. We, we are not, uh, this, this church is not as a, a business where you, a, a performance art where you've gotta be on cue, you gotta be on right all the time. We mess up all the time. I wouldn't be able to find my socks up here if it weren't for Mark. We mess up all the time, but you can serve God without fear. Why? Because it is by grace and not by works. And that, and that serving without fear, it grows into maturity and that becomes that we worship him in holiness and in righteousness. We worship him Rightly. We worship him in spirit and in truth. We understand that, yes, there is there is holiness and righteousness that we are maturing into. Beloved, God is not just saving us from hell. He's saving us from our sin. And that starts the moment you were saved. He's moving you away from those old habits. He's moving you away from those old chains. He's moving you away from that old bondage and he's making you a new person. And that started the moment you came to Christ. Don't wait until until you die to start becoming holy. You started becoming holy the moment you accepted Christ into your life. And he became the Lord of your life and he is perfecting you. He is making you ready. In fact, the old Puritans used to talk about making you fit for heaven, making you ready for heaven. And next week, we're gonna talk about the preparation. The Bethlehem candle is is symbolic of the preparation that God had prepared his people for the coming of the Lord. But in the same way, he is preparing us for his return. How many of you guys went to see family this week? I many of you guys got your house all ready for them? You dressed up? You know, some of you teenagers, you, you, you at least combed your hair this time, you know? Maybe not much else, but, but you did do that. You, uh, you prepared to go see family, to go see those you love, beloved in the same way. Christ is preparing a place for us and he is preparing us for that place. So he's making us righteous, he's making us holy and so that we might worship him in his presence. Do you realize the impact of that? Zechariah knows what he's doing here. You see, Zechariah, when all this started, all of this started with him going into the holy place, offering the sacrifice, lighting the candles and praying and he recognized that he is doing something that only a few people in Israel have the pleasure to do. He's walking into the very presence of God. And even then, he does not have the, he does not have the pleasure. He does not have the ability to walk into the holiest place. Or if you want to be Hebraic, it's the holy of holies, the, the holiest place that represents the very presence of God. He, he can't even do that. But he knows that that when this one comes, when God brings us salvation, we will worship him in holiness and righteousness before him. In other words, we will be in the direct presence of God. We're going to have communion in a moment, and and I always insist that I stand behind the table. I make the guys, actually. I, I think they used to do it anyway, but but, but I insist the guys have to pull out the table so I can stand behind it. And the reason why I do that is because the symbolism of that is that by me standing behind the table, you don't have to go through me to get to the elements. Right? See, in other churches, they'll stand in front of the table. And in fact, in some churches, they even come down and the priest actually even feeds it to you, which, <laughs> no. But, <laughs> but, uh What is that symbolizing? It's symbolizing their theology that you have to go through the priest to get to God or to get to Mary, to get to Jesus, to get to God or whatever saints or whatever. Beloved, I stand behind the table. Why? Because you have direct access to the Father through Jesus Christ. And that's what that symbolizes. That's why I insist on standing behind the table, right? Now, you know, don't make that a, If you have some other pastor who comes along later on and doesn't do that, don't don't fire him over it. But, but But that is our tradition. That is what we do. Because we communicate to you that you can worship in the very presence of God and you don't need a human priest to do that. That's what he's been given. And that will be forever. All our days. All of our days. We will have Access to the Father through Christ. You know, there's a debate whether Zechariah just speaking politically here or is he talking about spiritual realities. I don't, I don't think you have to have that debate because I think it's a false choice. Yes, Zechariah is talking about the coming king, but that coming king, what's he going to do? Looking Look in verse 77, to give knowledge of salvation to his people in the forgiveness of their sins. Beloved, Christ is gonna come back one day and he is going to establish his physical kingdom on earth and we are not gonna have a vote every four years to keep him there. We're not gonna ha- He's not gonna have to have a debate live on, on CNN or Fox News or you know, Take your pick. He's not gonna have to defend his position. He will be the king of kings, the Lord of lords, and he will establish his kingdom on earth and all of those who love him will be part of it. And we will worship him forever in the glory of holiness. And so that's a false choice. He will reign, yes, but he will reign over a forgiven people. And he will reign over a holy people. My question is this morning is, will you be there? Will you be there? We're not asking who's gonna be the next president and what laws are they gonna set up or do whatever it is we hope that they're gonna do. Beloved, that is inconsequential compared to eternity. And if you don't have this down, it does not matter who the next president is to you. It does not matter what laws are put in place. It does not matter any of that because if you don't know Jesus Christ as your savior, this is as close to heaven as you're ever gonna get. But the beloved promise of our savior is that if you do know Christ, then no matter how bad it gets here, you're as as close to hell as you're ever gonna get. And we can rejoice in that. We can rejoice in that. So every year, we get this yearly annual reminder again and again and again of the faithfulness of God. He is faithful in his promises. He is true by two sure foundations that he has sworn by himself and that he cannot lie that the promises are always yes in Christ Jesus. So how can, you, how can you incorporate this? Just very quickly, looking back at those three things we just went over, those three purposes, what can, how can we incorporate that? Number one, rest in his mercy. Rest in his mercy. Beloved, you do not have to wake up every morning and beg God to save you again and again and again. You don't have to live in that fear. You don't have to live in that constant guilt. Rest in his mercy. Rest in him to hope in his promise. Our hope is not on this planet. Our hope is in the one to come. Our hope is in Jesus Christ. Political parties will be bickering now for until the end of time. They always have. But Christ will always be king. And he will always be on the throne. And he has made promises that he is coming again. So rest in his promise. And number three, finally, live out our days to his glory. Live out our days to his glory. Every decision you make, ask, will this bring about the glory of God in accordance with my understanding of scripture? Will this bring about God's glory? And what I'm about to say, what I'm about to do, and these thoughts, whatever it is, live out our days to the glory of God. We are a people of uh, short memory spans. And so it's so easy to forget these things. So easy to get away from them. So that's why we come to this time, you know, we're celebrating the the birth of Christ this, this month, and yet it is really the death of Christ that we're about to commemorate. But you really can't have one without the other. And so as we come into this time, I think it's very appropriate not only to remember that Christ came, not just in birth, but he came in incarnation. He lived a human life before God. But that life is ultimately to die the death that we deserve. And as we come to this time in communion, I invite you to reflect on these promises and to remember the faithfulness of God to you. If you are here and you don't know Christ as your Savior, we would invite you to refrain from the supper at this time. But we do want you to ask questions. We want you to, to ask what these things mean. And if the person beside of you cannot really give a, you're not confident answering the question. Take them to someone. Take them to Stefan, Take them to, well, Stefan will probably be here, but but take them to someone who who can answer those questions for you. Wesley, Aaron, Logan, Roy will probably be up here too. But but any of them, just take them to them and let them ask their questions. Parents, don't shush your kids. Let them ask questions and answer their questions and let them see, you know, two of my three kids were saved because we had communion and they asked questions, two of my three. And so I invite you to have this time as a time of testimony if if the Lord should present you the opportunity. So let's bow together. And as we bow, I would ask our servants to come forward. Father, we come before you during this time and we thank you so much for everything that this season means and especially now as we come into this special time of commemorating your death. Lord, we ask you to provide a measure of grace according to your plan and your grace that you always give during this time to mature us and make us holy, to make us more like you as we as we think about the elements, as they come in, Lord, we we pray once again, we would internalize the promises of your grace. And if there is one here who doesn't know you as Savior, we pray that they would ask questions and find the answers they need. Lord, whatever the need is, we invite you in this time.